0: We hear it often. The Lord is coming soon. We're living in the last days. Do you believe it? I believe that to be true. But if it's true, the reality is that it's going to get worse before it gets better. How does that settle with you? So my question for this morning for us is, do you have hope? For these last days. Are you fearful? Are your thoughts filled with doom and gloom? Does your stomach go into knots as you think about the coming crisis? Is it anticipated or is it dreaded? Do you hope you live to see it or die before it happens? This week we were reading in a devotional book by Eric B. Hare. I think it's been republished because it doesn't have an antique cover on it. But we were looking at a story this week about how they escaped a war that was going on in Burma where they were, and they had to get out. The time was very uh, apparent to them that they had to leave, and so they packed up their car and they made their way, and when they got to a river that they had to cross, and go on a ferry and all that kind of thing when they got there the ferry had stopped running they had flown as well and so there the hare family was by the river there in burma knowing they needed to leave but wondering how they were going to get their car packed with their few things across Are we going to have to go by canoe to the other side? And if so, then we're on foot and, you know, we're limited in what we can carry, which is probably not much of anything. So they hired two boats and lashed them together. And the plan was to drive their small little car on top and to have these boats ferry them across this river. But their plan was thwarted when they went in search of lumber that they could drive their car onto And couldn't find any. There was a mill there in town. But the mill was closed. They had fled as well. It was all locked up and chained and all the rest. And so they were left wondering what to do. And so they prayed. And they prayed fervently. Midnight came. Nothing happened. One o'clock, two o'clock came. I should tell you the boat drivers were getting a little bit excited. They were saying, They're going to have to leave their car here. I want the steering wheel. I'm going to take a suitcase. And they were jeering and jesting. Well, it was at 4 o'clock in the morning that Eric woke up with a strong sense, go back to the lumber mill now. Okay. And so he got one of the both drivers, and they got a a bullock and a cart, and they went at 4 in the morning, in the dark, about three miles over to This mill. And sure enough, just as they were there, there was somebody at the gate filling with the lock. And they opened up the gate and they were going inside. It was the son who owned the mill, who was coming to get some papers in the middle of the night and sneak back to his refuge. they explained the situation. They got the lumber that they needed and they were on their way back. And one of the boat drivers said, your God did speak to you tonight, didn't he? Because just as they were leaving, he was locking up the gate, putting the chains around, Perfect timing. And sure enough, they drove their car on top and made it safely across the river. I tell you, is God in control? Does God look after his children? And does he provide for them? I believe Jesus ever has his eye on us and he provides for us. You see, we can have an understanding of the crisis without an understanding of the Christ and not be able to go through the crisis. An understanding of the pain without an understanding of the promises only leaves you to struggle. An understanding of doom without understanding deliverance only leaves you depressed. And so we not only want to face what is coming, but we want to face it confidently and courageously in Jesus Christ. Amen? And so today we're going to begin a series. We're going to go for, I think, Six Sabbaths here with Hope in the Last Days, is what we're going to call it. It is based largely on a series that Mark Finley did at GYC years ago. I believe it was back in 2007. And I have listened to that series so many times, it's had a profound impact on me. In fact, when I was trained for this half marathon this last fall, my mind would not be helpful in that training process. So I would turn on Mark Finley in this series, and it would help me. To keep going. And so I'm going to share some of that series with you. But our goal is to focus on Jesus on every single sermon. Focus on the things that God has chosen to clearly reveal to us. Through his word and through the spirit of prophecy that he has given to guide this church at this time. And so there's several things we're going to look at. Today is the coming crisis anticipated or dreaded. And then next week we'll look at revival, genuine or counterfeit. We're going to look at Satan's strategy for the unconverted, the converted, and even Seventh-day Adventists. We're going to look at Satan's false miracles, Satan's false religious revivals, and spiritualism. When latter rain will be poured out, and how to be a recipient of the latter rain. Then the following Sabbath we're going to look at shaken or sealed. What's the difference between the shaking... And the ceiling. There's specific examples of those in Scripture that were shaken. How many will leave God's church? What will cause the shaking and how will I be aware of that? Then in the middle of March, we're going to look at worship and the National Sunday Law. We're going to look at some misapprehension that some world leader is going to come onto the scene and pass some kind of religious legislation but we will see that how that is contrary to both the Bible and the, and the writings of Ellen White. Rather, the Sunday Law is going to come not from the top down, but from the bottom up. It's going to be demanded by the people that you will keep us safe. And so, to be elected, they will simply bow to the public favor of the people. We've even seen that in the Supreme Court here recently, haven't we? What has changed? The favor of the people. Also in March... We're going to look at the close of probation and the seven last plagues. We will look at the plagues and the promises and see how Christ is in every single plague. You're not going to want to miss that one. Are these plagues arbitrary acts of God or do these plagues have something to do with the plan of salvation? And then finally, the first Sabbath in April, heaven and eternity is heaven for real. But as we begin our study, I want to start in Revelation 1.1. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Of all the books in the Bible, Revelation outlines the events that will occur at end time. Revelation has been written for a last day generation that would go through the end of Earth's history. It's not just merely a book of signs and symbols, but it's a revelation of Jesus himself. In fact, we see several contrasts in Revelation. I've outlined seven here, but in Revelation we see two leaders, the lamb and the dragon, two signs, the seal of God and the mark of the beast, two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon, two women, the bride of Christ and the harlot woman. Two harvests, golden grain and gory grapes. Two spirits, the Holy Spirit and the spirit of demons. And lastly, two choices, the righteous and the unrighteous. Seven contrasts, but virtually contrasting the same thing, aren't they? At the end of time, everyone will identify with one of those two groups. And at the end, every human being will line up under one of those two choices. People will either follow the dragon or the lamb. They'll either have the seal of God or the mark of the beast. And we find also in Revelation that there are two great objectives. The first, to reveal the plans of God. And secondly, to unmask the plans of Satan. If we distill it down, that's what we have in the book Of Revelation. And so we're going to now open up our Bibles. I may put a few texts on the screen at the end, but right now we're going to focus again on the three angels' messages of Revelation chapter 14, and I want you to see it and to read it out of your own Bible. There's something powerful about seeing the words on your own written page, isn't there? And so I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 14, beginning verse 6. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. And there we read Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Today, I believe our young people want to be part of something huge, something big. The greatest evangelistic meetings, I believe, are yet to be held. The greatest crowds are yet to come to our meetings. You know, this Adventist message has been preached around the world, sometimes to a crowd of over 100,000 people in Papua New Guinea, where 20,000 people come to the front at an altar call. 20,000. I believe we're going to see things bigger than that, where thousands are being converted. And we see that happening in Brazil and Africa and other places. When I went to field school in Africa, I was amazed at how many people, has anybody ever witnessed a mass baptism? Where literally there were, I don't remember how many sites, maybe 20, 30 sites around Kenya. And then on that final Sabbath, all of the people that wanted to be baptized came to this Olympic-sized pool, and for hours and hours and hours, and somebody's at a microphone and they're calling out and reading in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost over and over, and again... Boom, there's about 50 to 100 people being baptized, and again, and again, and again, and you sit there, and it's all day long. It's powerful. I believe that not only will be repeated, that will be exceeded before Jesus comes. Then we read verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. First two words of that message, fear God. Pastor Hyman last week did a beautiful job of breaking down exactly what that word means. How when we genuinely fear God, it will lead to a change in our behavior and our actions. How fearing God gives us wisdom. How it will also enable us to keep the Ten Commandments, to share the final warnings to the world. How fearing God will lead us to hate evil, to worship God as the Creator, to love Him with all our heart. To fear God is to give Him reverence and reverential obedience. And then last week you also shared how God will help us to do all those things through His power. I believe at this time of moral relativism when the prevailing thought pattern is there is no objective standard truth. You have your truth, I have my truth. Whatever you want to believe, that's okay. It really doesn't matter. There still is a message calling men and women back to fear God. God still says, I am the supreme authority, not the self in your heart. Fear God. Secondly, give glory to Him. Sometimes you hear people talk about, oh, that's just social gospel. What is social gospel? What does it promise? Well, if you listen long enough, social gospel promises health, wealth, and prosperity. Where's the focus? Me, myself, and I. The gospel of the New Testament, the Seventh day Adventists, and clearly here in Revelation, is a million miles away from this gospel that's so prevalent today. It's not an egocentric gospel focused on who I am, but focuses on who he is. There's a difference. It's not focused on the improvement of me, but on the submission to him. Again, there's a difference. If in my giving glory to him he blesses my life with health and wealth and prosperity, that's up to him. But if my lot is one of poverty and sickness, that's up to him too. Of greater importance to me must be that Jesus is glorified in my life. Whatever lot my life may take, whatever direction it may be. Fear God. Give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. Judgment speaks about accountability, moral responsibility, the significance of our actions. And lastly, worship him. In an age of evolution, we are directed to the Creator, aren't we? Then, as we move along, there's a contrast between verse 7 and verse 8. In Revelation, verse 7, we have the call to true worship. There's a call to obey God, to give glory to Him in everything we do, what I eat, what I drink, my lifestyle. There's moral responsibility in light of the judgment. There's a call to worship the Creator in an age of evolution, with the Sabbath as the symbol of His creative authority. And then in Revelation verse 8, we read another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. In verse 8, those churches who reject the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ, that is to go to the ends of the earth, they have rejected the concept of giving glory to him. They failed to understand that we are living in the judgment hour, a unique time in earth's history. They have turned their back on the symbol of the worship of the Creator, namely the Sabbath. And so it says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Wine, unfermented wine, is true doctrine. But wine that is tainted or fermented is false doctrine. It affects the forebrain. Makes you shoot dolphins, right? So wine of Babylon gets people intoxicated. Oh, as long as I love Jesus, I can dabble in this a little bit. I can dabble in that a little bit. It's not going to make a big difference. In fact, it doesn't make any difference at all. I'm saved by grace. And that Sabbath, you all are such legalists when it comes to the Sabbath. Come to our side. We're saved by grace. The intoxication of false doctrine. But the Bible says Babylon is what? Fallen. Now, this goes without saying, but the second angel's message follows the first angel's message. Some of you are still awake. But the second angel's message not only follows the first, but is a consequence of the first. So the true church preaches the first angel's message. Gospel into the, the earth, body temple, judgment Sabbath. The fallen churches of Babylon reject the first angel's message, and that's why they become Babylon. But Babylon is what? Is fallen. So here's the question. And this is a little aside. But if Babylon is fallen and you are looking up to Babylon, imitating their methods, admiring their strategies, and going to their seminars, where are you? just think about that we'll go on so revelation 7 says to worship the creator revelation chapter 14 verse 9 says do not worship the beast or verse 8 i suppose now what happens to those that worship the beast <clears throat> Well, let's read about it. I was supposed to read verse 9. Let's go ahead and do that. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. So again, verse 7 is to worship the Creator. Verse 9 says, Do not worship the beast. And now what is the wine of the wrath of God, you may be asking, there in verse 10. Well, if you just keep your finger there and you go to chapter 15, verse 1, it will tell you. Then I saw another sign in the heavens, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the what? Wrath of God is complete. So the wine of God's wrath is the seven last plagues. And we'll look more fully at those. But I want you to understand, the wrath of God is not at all the anger of God. We throw that around. Don't mess with me or you'll experience my wrath. That's not what this is talking about. It has to do with the judgments of God against sin. And we'll look at that in more detail. But if we look at the big picture, as the gospel goes to the end of the earth, there will be a reaction for or against the gospel. The unique aspects of the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. And what are they? Obedience to God, body, temple, judgment, Sabbath. And churches that reject that become Babylon. Most of God's people today are still in, peop- in, in Babylon. And I'd say most of God's people are still in Babylon. But God is calling them out of Babylon. Sometimes people have issue with us making friends and mingling with people that are not of our denomination. Folks, where are most of God's people? Out there. Don't we want to befriend them, get to know them, share the love of Christ with them? So God is calling them out of Babylon. Then the devil, seeing the gospel, going rapidly around the earth, comes at it with a counterfeit Revival with signs and miracles and wonders. And so you have two things happening simultaneously, the mighty working of the Holy Spirit and the marvelous working of demons. And as this comes to a crescendo, all hell breaks loose on earth. Natural disasters, economic disasters, war, conflict, strife. In the midst of all this, the honest and heart are brought to the surface. And the mighty latter rain comes with the loud cry. And when every human being has had opportunity to be fully sold out for Christ or against Christ, human probation closes and the seven last plagues are poured out. This is, in essence, a summary of Revelation chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. And then we read in Revelation chapter 14 verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Verse 7 worship the creator. Verse 8 Babylon has fallen because she's turned from true worship. Verse 9 says do not worship the beast, and verse 12 is an appeal that those who do not take the mark of the beast or drink the wine of Babylon Here's the endurance of the saints. That's believers. And who are they? They keep the commandments of God. They have the faith of Jesus. That is to say, they are committed to Christ. And as a result to that commitment, they live a life of obedience to Him. Not to earn it, but because it's been freely given. And this brings a crisis, and crisis comes when everyone must decide, followed by the close of probation, the seven last plagues, and Jesus' return. So we have four key events. The first, the proclamation of the gospel by use of every means at our disposal, satellite, radio, TV, internet. Thousands of Seventh-day Adventists around the world sharing this message as we speak. One-day churches, one-day schools. Secondly, it's an announcement of the judgment. Those who proclaim the gospel announce the pre-Advent judgment. No longer time as usual, but we are living in the judgment hour. We are living in the end time. Thirdly, it's a call to worship the creator. Seventh-day Adventists call people back to worship the creator, God. We do not believe we evolved by chance and there was some genetic biological accident. We do not believe that we are simply a collection of chemical molecules that exist because some right combination came together. No, we were formed. In the mind of God. Before you were conceived in the womb of your mother, a loving God formed you and shaped you and fashioned you. You're not a biological accident, you're not simply skin covering bone. You have purpose and meaning and direction. In an age of evolution, when people have lost hope, they've lost meaning, they've lost purpose in their lives. If all I am is skin on bones, where does life have purpose? Where does it have meaning? If the grave is the end, and I'm simply in a large species of animal creation, if I'm simply an intelligent ape, if that is all that I am, if there's no conscience, no reason, if there's no judgment, I'm just a biological animal, and if my only hope is in a dark hole in the ground, and if death is a long night without a morning, then survival of the fittest does make the most sense. And it's an adequate approach to life, if that's what I believe. And if I'm just an intelligent ape, then I must squeeze out every inch of pleasure I can before I die, because that's it. But if I'm created in the image of God, if the purpose of life is to glorify him, and if one day I can live with him in a land where there is no sickness or suffering or death for all eternity, that gives life meaning. That gives life focus. That gives life hope, doesn't it? The message of the Sabbath, leading the world back to the creator, is the answer to the problem of low self-esteem, the purposelessness, and meaninglessness. No sense of direction. Talk about the postmodern mind. God knew what he was doing when he crafted the Advent message. To philosophically tailor it to meet the minds of a generation that have lost hope. The Avenue's message is not some antiquated 19th century mentality that was developed by a bunch of bearded old fanatics. The Three Angels message, I believe, was crafted by God and given to intelligent, intellectual pioneers. And it becomes not less relevant as time goes on, but more relevant as time goes on. Great controversy is not becoming expired as a book. It is more and more proving it's inspired as a book. And I believe our message becomes more and more relevant every day. Sometimes you hear people say, you know, we've been preaching this message for over 150 years. Shouldn't we revise our theology? Revise our theology. I may not know exactly when the Lord's going to come, but I know we're 150 years closer, not 150 years further away. When communism fell, Mark Finley was invited to Sheikas Vada University in Hungary. And I have to share this story because it's fascinating to me. He describes it as one of the most secular, godless universities in the world. And it's filled with intellectual geniuses and the president invited him, Mark Finley, to come to a lecture on astronomy. And he said, Elder Finley, you speak... On astronomy for one hour then we're going to have an atheist speak on astronomy for one hour then we're going to open it up for the students and they can ask your questions how'd you like that invitation (laughs) pastor Finley responded that's a wonderful idea but why don't you let your astronomy professor speak first and let me speak second since I'm your guest he says, I'm doing, I do a lot better at asking questions than about being target of questions, so we'll just let him go first. So the university president said, No problem, no problem, we can do that, and they arranged the whole thing. And when the day came, Elder Finley showed up, and the president found him. He said, Mr. Finley, there's a problem, there's a big problem. <clears throat> what seems to be the problem? Well, the other professor had an emergency and he can't show up. <laughs> Elder Finley said, Praise the Lord! <laughs> He's been raptured. I was praying he'd be raptured. (laughs) He didn't say that out loud. He stayed calm, cool, and collected. He said, there's no problem. I can just speak for two hours. (laughs) And so he did. He spoke for two hours on the existence of God, the philosophical and psychological evidence of the Creator God. And at the end of that lecture... I told you there was going to be some question and answer. And the faculty were sitting on one side, and the students were everywhere else, but he could tell that this one student had been prompted by the faculty to ask this specific question. And he knew that he couldn't debate them on science, but he knew that he could debate them on philosophy. Because the philosophical underpinnings of atheism are really barren. And there's nothing in atheism that gives any kind of morality at all. And so that was his approach that he had to attack. it. So the student stood up. And he said, Mr. Finley, I have a question. Sure, go ahead. What's your question? When the Soviet cosmonaut, Yuri Gargarwin, circled the stratosphere in the Sputnik... He said he never saw God. Have you ever seen God? And he says, at that moment, the Lord gave him an answer that he had never thought of or contemplated before. And he said this, I want to ask you a question. I want to leave God out of it. I want to leave the Bible out of it. I want to leave faith out of it. I just want to talk about intellectual things. Of all the knowledge that there is in the world... How much knowledge do you students suppose that you have? Let's say for example there's 2800 languages in the world. How many of those do you speak? Do you speak 100 languages? Do you speak 200 languages? How many languages do you speak? Of all the knowledge of chemistry there is in the world, how much knowledge of chemistry do you have? Let's suppose there's 500 new books written in the last five, 10 years on chemistry? How many of those have you read? Of all the, the, the knowledge of astrophysics there is in the world, let's talk about China. Let's talk about the Ming Dynasty. I want you to take out a piece of paper. I want you to write down the 17 emperors of the Ming Dynasty. I want you to write out who they married, their 38 sons, daughters, or whatever all that is. Of all the knowledge of the world, of all the books printed just this year, of all the thousands and thousands of books, of all the scientific knowledge, how much would you say that you have? Student really didn't know how to respond. Would you say you know 50% of all that there is to know from the intellectual intellectual standpoint? Oh, no, no, we don't know 50%. Do you know 25%? Oh, no, we don't know 25%. 10%? Oh, I don't even know we know 10%. Finally, he looked over at the group of professors on this side. And he said, teacher, you'll just have to give me this one. Let's just suppose, let's say that your students, because you all, on your faculty, you have so many PhDs, you're so smart, your students are so bright, let's say that all of your students know 5% of all the knowledge that there is to know. I only have one question. If by your admission... You don't know 95% of all that there is to know. Could God exist in that 95% of knowledge that you don't have? Then Elder Finley said, from an intellectual standpoint, or I should respond, they responded to him. He said, from an intellectual standpoint, yeah, that's true. He said, let me ask you another question. If there are only two alternatives, and I'm not asking you to believe... But one is a loving God that created you. He fashioned you. He shaped you. He's with you in your life. He will give you purpose and meaning and hope beyond the grave, and you can live with him for eternity. And when there will be no sickness there or suffering or death. Now, I'm not asking you to believe. I'm just saying if that is one alternative, and if the second alternative is that there really is no meaning to life, You are an enlarged animal. You're a little higher than the apes. You have no direction or purpose in life. And when you die, you go into the grave and Russian worms eat your body. Now, if that's the only two choices you have, which one are you going to take? I'm not asking you to believe. I'm just asking if those are two choices you have, which are you going to take? And I said, well, obviously the first one. He said, well, then you're not an atheist because an atheist says, I know God doesn't exist. But you've just told me that you know that, or that you don't know 95% of all the knowledge that exists and that God could ex- exist in that 95% of knowledge, so you're not atheists. I also know that you're not agnostics because an agnostic says God may exist, probably doesn't exist, but if he does, I don't even care. But you just told me that you did care. Do you know what you are? He says... You're seekers, whose minds have been programmed with atheistic knowledge, and you have heard only one side of the question, and that's why it came today, because you're all really seekers. They were seekers, weren't they? But they didn't know that, and somebody had to go and tell them. And I believe the reason they functioned as they did, because their minds were saturated in a different way, an atheistic way of thinking. And Elder Finley said, at the conclusion of that assembly or whatever it was called, he says, I brought 25 Bibles with me. If there are any seekers here that would like a Bible, you can come down front afterwards. He said, I thought there was going to be a riot. As students jumped over each other and pushed each other out of the way to grab one of those 25 Bibles. He said they practically mauled him. Why? I believe because the message of a creator God is the message that our hearts long for. We don't want to be a speck of cosmic dust in the universe. The creator God is at the heart of the three angels' message, at the heart of Adventism. And the world is dying for that. And lastly, we've got to go here. Warning against false worship. The great issue throughout is loyalty to God. The question is, do you have an undivided heart? In the coming crisis, God will not abandon His children. God will not leave us. I don't know that we really have time to unpack this chart. Don't be overwhelmed. But there's so many parallels in Daniel chapter three and Revelation chapter 13. And both, you have a universal world leader. In both, you have a counterfeit image. In both, even the dimensions, 60 and 6 and 666, are similar. You have a command to worship. You have a universal death decree. God's people are persecuted and oppressed. But ultimately, what happens as a result? Are they spared from ever being thrown into the fiery furnace? No, they go and they get thrown in. But notice the only ones who died that day were the persecutors, not the persecuted. They cast them in bound, but now they are loosed. The only things that the flames did was burn up the ties that bound them to this earth. And so we read in Daniel chapter three, verse 25, look, says Nebuchadnezzar, I see four men loosed walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of God. In the midst of their crisis moment, God was with them. Verse 27 And the saptraps, the administrators, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together. Everyone was watching. And they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. The smell of fire was not even on them. This is incredible. And the mere images aren't in Revelation 13. They come a little bit later. But behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watch and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And in 19.9, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, there's a fiery trial coming. But as we lift our eyes in faith, the only thing the trial does is purify our faith so we long for heaven more. The trial does not destroy us. It burns up and consumes all those things that bind us to this earth. Praise the Lord. And Romans reminds us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need not fear the crisis that is coming because we know the Christ of that crisis. We need not be fearful of the pain for we are standing on God's promises. We need not to be filled with doom for God has offered us deliverance. In the coming crisis, God will not abandon his children. As we trust in him, we have nothing to fear. Dear Heavenly Father, you have reminded us today that despite what is coming, we have no reason to fear as long as we cling to your hand. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful message that you have given and entrusted to us. Lord, may we not hide it under a bushel, but may we proclaim it. With all love and sensitivity but with boldness and with courage because it is your message for this world for this time in your name we pray amen This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons please visit www.audioverse dot org